I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> the Adventures of Tintin and the BFG. Snowy, look at this. A unicorn. That's a very unique specimen, that is. Finest ship has ever sailed the seven seas. How much for the boat? It's not for sale. You're about to walk into a whole mess of danger. Something happened on this ship. What secrets do you hold? What's this? That model ship conceals a clue to one of the greatest treasures in all history. Good boy, Snowy. Thanks, I'm Tintin, by the way. Haddock. Archibald Haddock. Find them. Find them both. Put your hands up. You do know what you're doing, eh? Relax. I interviewed a pilot once. I swear I'll find that treasure before him. What have you done? I let a wee fire in a boat. Well, this is a fine mess. We can't turn back. Not now. Okay, Tintin and the Secret of the Unicorn, uh, the 2011 film and Steven Spielberg's only animated directed movie ever. He's produced a hell of a lot through DreamWorks, uh, along with Don Bluth with those American Tale movies and uh, things like that. But uh, this is the uh, first and only time he's picked up a camera and... I mean, the the way this is animated allows you to pick up a camera and, and start... You know, filming. In fact, um, it's also his only digital film. He has gone out of his way his whole career to shoot on film, something which I appreciate more and more each year. Uh, and but he said, yeah, because of the way this is filmed, digital is it, it calls for it. I don't, I don't, don't know whether it would be possible to do this film without shooting on digital would it it's it's performance capture the whole yeah, thing is done something's entirely cg i believe digital is the only way mm. you can do it because you, you can't otherwise you're having to print out individual frames of your motion and and photograph it the way you would yeah. with a hand-drawn animation and that's that's yes, yeah. defeating the whole point of yeah. why people move to cg you're making it much harder for you absolutely yourself. yeah, yeah. This actually dates back a lot longer than a lot of people would think. In 1981, Spielberg released Raiders of the Lost Ark. And uh, he was interested in hearing what people were saying about it around the world. So he picked up a French um, publication, possibly Cahiers du Cinema, if that was still going. Uh, we were watching, by the way, um, Fahrenheit 451, directed by um, Francois Truffaut, and uh, there was one point where, uh, on the book-burning pile, uh, someone had thrown a copy of Cahiers du Cinéma, uh, a, a magazine publication that he and his mate, Jean-Luc Godard, and a bunch of other French New Wave, who would go on to become the French New Wave directors, kind of like the um, intelligentsia of cinema. And so, yeah, his magazine's getting thrown on the book pile, and it's like, yeah, we, we see what you're doing there, Francois. Well done, though. Interesting link, Truffaut was in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. 
So anyway, um, Steve's reading, or trying to read, this uh, publication, this review of uh, Raiders in French. And he's like, I think I'm just about following this. Tintin? What's this? Tintin? Tintin, Tintin, Tintin. And he's like, what does Tintin mean? Now, Tintin had been going since the 20s as uh, this uh, uh, French um, uh, creator uh, had been sending him on all kinds of global uh, mystery-solving adventures. Um, Oh, no, sorry, I say French. He's Belgian. Uh, Hergé. The French press were comparing raiders to Tintin. They were saying, well, all of this globe-trotting to find artifacts and treasure-hunting and the Ark of the Covenant... C'est magnifique, c'est un like Tintin. It's just Tintin with a teaching position. Tintin with a hat on <laughs> to cover his giant onion head. Anyway, <laughs> so... Uh, I think Indiana Jones would have benefited from a dog. So Steve was like, right, get me some Tintin and started reading loads of it. And then he found out that Hergé really liked Raiders of the Lost Ark. And so they, they chatted with each other. And Hergé was... Uh, not happy with live action and animated versions of Tintin that had currently been made. He was like, Je n'aime pas uh, le Tintin des animés un français. And I'm sorry, French speakers. It's all right. I think most of that was more or less yeah. right. And uh, um, Spielberg was like, what, what about the live action one? He went, Je déteste. <laughs> and. <laughs> And uh, so he said, uh, Vu, Vu Spielberg, could Vu do Tintin pour moi? And uh, Steve said, Abs- yeah, let's talk about it. It's 1983, I'm, I'm making Temple right now, can you meet with me? And uh, they arranged to meet, and that week, Hergé died. Oh. And that's just... <sighs> I'm beginning to think that the Reaper has got a sick fucking sense of humour. It's not him. It's whoever sends him. Yeah. He looks at the orders and goes, are you shitting me? Do you do seriously? Do seriously? Can we we wait a year on this You're not the one who has to go down there and see their... No. No? No. Okay, Okay, fine. Cool. Fair (laughs) enough. As long as everything's all proceeding, it's all part of the plan. Mm. And whoever is, you know, planning exactly who the Reaper needs to take out... He's laughing his sick fucking ass off! But he's got a... Great ass! Anyway, so Ruth Bader Ginsburg just died, and I'm like, fucking seriously, now? Days away? Days away? Now? Now? Anyway, thanks. Reaper, um... <clears throat> so this is a 28-year production. This is uh, something that Spielberg had kind of like, should we do this? We definitely kind of need to do this for a, a long time, and it was in kind of development... We discussed this earlier. It was described as being in development hell, which is, by the way, where the sequel to this film is currently residing. Development hell is a misnomer. It's not development hell. It's development limbo. limbo. That kind of place where you're not sure. If it's development hell, Tintin's being on a a rack going, why, why? Is it because I've got a head like an onion? It might be because you've got a head like an onion. I needed that liver. (laughs) What? It's a long uh, production. Um, at times, it was like Spielberg was just going to produce it. And uh, at one point, it was going to be... Uh, um, Captain Haddock was going to be played by Jack Nicholson. Let me make myself understood. You come on my boat. You damn well better play by my rules. 
You want me to go across the world to find some treasure that probably doesn't exist and only because you have nothing better to do with yourself except hanging on my beard all day. For a time, the director was going to be Roman Polanski. Oh my god. Good lord, no. Whew. Please no. Thank you. Stay where you are, Roman. Reaper taps watch. <laughs> Uh, he, he ended up co-producing this one with Peter Jackson. Um, a, a notably different tone between this and, say, Temple of Doom when he's co-producing with S Lucas. And it's a globe-trotting adventure. You've got a lot of different cultures. You're effectively... It's a treasure hunt, so there's a little bit of kind of like, are we robbing from people here? And But it's 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 from like a, a, a galleon that contained gold. And thinking about it, since the pirate Red Rackham is a composite of various real-life pirates, John Calico Jack Rackham, Edward Blackbeard Teach, and Montbars the Exterminator, this gold would be purloined from merchant ships and possibly the Spanish Navy. So technically, if anyone has claim to it, it's parts of Europe. Oh, and uh, Jackson suggested um, circus for um, Haddock. Because, of course... Um, at this point, in the mid-2000s, they were sort of developing into video games, performance capture, and sort of working out. Like, this was, uh, like, do you remember Heavenly Sword came out? And Andy Serkis sort of oversaw that. And, like, he was, he's always kind of been at the forefront of that. And, and um, you know, obviously with uh, the Planet of the Apes films, you know, which came way after all of this pre-production, uh, he, he's 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 a like, if you're doing performance capture, you want circus there. And circus heard this and thought, "Am I going to be snowy?" And it was like, "No, imagine yeah. We'd the have idea." We'd Toby Kebbell if that was the case. For a dog, you want Terry Notary. <laughs> uh, but in the end, um, thank you, Indy, for providing dog sounds. In the end, dog sounds were provided by dogs, and they had to send Frank Welker a uh, official letter of apology because he he turned up at the studio. He was like, "Right, uh, uh, we're going to be uh, providing some dog noises for you today," and they said, uh, "Sorry, Frank, we're actually having this dog voiced by dogs." But that's preposterous. That was Frank Oz, not Frank. Welker. I don't know why he sounds like Ray Romano or Kermit the Frog. Frank Welker clearly sounds more like, and that's Casey Kasem. <laughs> Now he's shaggy. He sounds more like Fred, perhaps, but an old man version of Fred. Anyway. Reaper, stay the fuck away. Anyway, we're, we're noodling all over the place on this one. Um, and it was uh, in 2006, five years before this film came out, uh, they did some test footage at uh, Playa Vista in Los Angeles where they shot Avatar. Mm -hmm. Later shot Avatar, like they hadn't yet done it. Uh, James Cameron was there. Uh, he was present. I'm sure he was taking notes and going, yeah, this is how I want my Avatar to be. Because remember, this was during the period where he had done Titanic in 97 mm -hmm. and he'd done a fuck all since then. He'd, he'd done the um, uh, underwater... Uh, documentary Ghosts of the Abyss which as far as I can tell to date has not been released in HD and it feels like it feels like you'd want that in HD mm. it feels like you'd want Ghosts of the Abyss or The Abyss in HD 
Um, and another person who was present was Bob Zemeckis. So it's 2006. Image Movies Digital, very much still going. Right. They're done. Was Zemeckis an actual part of Image Movers then? Yeah, no, he, it was his studio. He founded ah, that. Gotcha. Okay. So they'd done the Polar Express in 2004, two years ago. Um, I think in 2006 they were doing, and it was just about to be released, Monster House. Mm-hmm. 2007 was definitely better. Christmas Carol, where did that fall? 2009. That gotcha. was after Disney had bought Image Movers oh, Digital. Okay. But watching this film, I was like, how is this not Image Movers Digital? It, 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 is, it is filmed in a very similar way to the Jim Carrey Christmas Carol. Uh, What happened with Image Movies Digital, we've already lamented before, though we will go into it again when we cover Beowulf. Well, basically, uh, Universal were going to be co-funding Tintin, and then Monster House did not do great, even though it's really good, and Beowulf did not do great, even though we really like it. Universal pulled out on Tintin, Disney bought Image Movies Digital, they made Christmas Carol, it did good, but not splendidly, they started doing Mars Needs Moms, Disney cut funding, Disney cut advertising, Disney shit-canned it, released it in 11 cinemas, and basically closed Image Movies Digital, thus ending any possibility of future films made in this style. But then Secret of the Unicorn came out around about that time, so it feels like this was also the last cast. I'm sure it'll come back in effect, in effect, folks, the, aside from Endgame, most successful movie of all time is this, is Avatar, is this plus some humans who are the Roger Rabbits of the Pandora world. Am I wrong? It's performance capture. It's just that they don't try to make the Navi look like humans. They make them look stretchy and long and weird, and they don't try to make them look exactly like us. That's where James Cameron was like, I see what they're doing here. They've made them look a little bit too much like us, Uncanny Valley. Mm, It's still Uncanny Valley. When you see Sigourney Weaver's face on a Navi, you're like, something wrong here. Technically speaking, by the way, the humans are the Bob Hoskins of Pandora. I suppose when he goes to Toontown. When, yeah, exactly. <laughs> when they're on Pandora, all the backgrounds are animated as well. Yeah. So he's in their world. Which does that make um, <laughs> does that make Zoe Saldana the uh, Jessica Rabbit or the Mina Hyena of uh, that particular story? Good question. Uh, I'm going to go with Jessica Rabbit. Okay then. <laughs> So yeah, stay tuned in 2021 for shows on Beowulf, Avatar, and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Right, so it's 2006, they did like a, a tech demo of like how they could do Tintin. Like I said, it was overseen by these uh, other uh, producers and directors, and uh, it was kind of a let's see if we can make this work. But they couldn't immediately go and carry on making it because... <laughs> uh, Jackson, who was producing, had to go off... The idea was that... Spielberg directs the first one and Jackson produces and then they swap roles for the second uh, and the second never emerged um, because people don't like this kind of movie even though it did it did well it made uh, 350 million from 135 million budget uh, but it didn't do Avatar bucks in which case it would have immediately had five sequels like Avatar did checks watch um <clears throat> But then they went off and uh, Jackson directed The Lovely Bones. He had to get that out of his system. And uh, Spielberg directed Crystal Skull. He had to get that out of his system. Maybe you could just have done Tintin. Maybe just skip those two. But there's just it's, the, the, the production side of it is, is quite interesting. The uh, uh, script was originally written by Stephen Moffat 
who then went off to do Doctor Who. Then they handed it over to Edgar Wright, who then went off to do Scott Pilgrim. Then they handed it over to Joe Cornish, who had nothing better to do than work with Steven fucking Spielberg. Would you please quit quitting Steven Spielberg sets? Get stuff done! Thank you, Joe Cornish. The script for this is actually really pretty good. There were never, there was never any moment when I was like, "Oh, that's a terrible line." Oh, that's a clunker. There were no Wild Wild West moments or Men in Black Two moments when I was like, "This is shit." Uh, Jackson apparently supervised filming for the first week over Skype, which feels uh, like uh, well, like he was just like he was there going, "Yeah, I've done performance capture before," and okay. uh, just wanted to pandemic practice. I was gonna say. <laughs> This feels like, in the future, if you want to do a big blockbuster, mm. perhaps, performance capture might be a way of doing it, but I don't know, people, it's expensive, like you, it's not cheap, mm. and it's, it's dicey, but ultimately, if you're going to film, that's our, that is not only a whole other podcast, that is a series of ongoing podcasts speculating and updating and we are not going to spend our, our time doing that for School of Movies that is our dog providing dog noises quit scratching go and lie down go and lie down I just said quit scratching that is not lying down he's smiling lie down good boy thank you right uh, apparently, um, various directors visited the set when they finally came back and actually started filming while while Jackson was supervising. Uh, David Fincher was there. I'm not like I think he was probably there to help with the whole the camera side of things because you remember when the camera zooms around in Fight Club and in in um, uh, Panic Room and Spielberg wanted to get that sense of mobility for the camera, mm. but to make it feel like it never feels in David Fincher films like you're suddenly entering into an animation. It feels well, this... like the camera is tiny yeah. and very mobile. And I was actually going to say this is one of the the major strong points about this movie in comparison to others of its ilk, which I'm thinking particularly uh, Christmas Carol. There is. There are parts of the film where they switch you on to some kind of roller coaster ride because they've got the ability to send you up and down and backwards and side to side, and by hell they're gonna do it. Yeah. And it never really felt in Tintin. There's a couple of moments where they kind of they do that, but it never felt overblown. It never felt like it was too much or, or forced. excessive or forced, or it's just there to get people excited. It always felt like it fit with what was going on. A lot of the set pieces did. I'm, I got a big Raiders vibe from this one of all the uh, Indiana Jones films and especially with John Williams score I'd, I'd, I'd heard it once when I watched the film the first time and then I heard it again last night while we watched it and then I listened to it again today and I'm like this is great it's a really good score I heartily recommend you just track down listen to the whole thing beginning to end it just it feels like adventure and, and it feels like Indiana Jones but at the same time it's got it's own um, influences in there. There's some 60s cool jazz. It evokes Catch Me If You Can at times. Um, it's, got, it's got personality to it. And it's a really just good... Like It's not so much low-key as a score. And it's probably not going to be the kind of score that you're humming. But just to, 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 to have something really great to listen to. Mm. Like You could put this on on vinyl and just appreciate it, you know? But yeah, the set pieces. And the, there's a lot of, a lot of vehicle-based set pieces. But they're all sort of vintage vehicles. So it doesn't feel 
too roller coastery. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of sort of like old planes and old cars and old ships. Um, and it, it, Spielberg deliberately wanted it to feel like uh, a timeless Europe, so that no cell phones, no modern cars. It, it, didn't, it needed to not feel contemporary. And while he wanted it to feel timeless, to me it felt like 1963 precisely. Mm. Like no later and no earlier. Like that's the level of tech. You got some stuff left over from the Second World War, mm. and, and you got some stuff kind of pushing forwards. Um, it never quite hits that Wes Anderson feel of the 70s. Mm. Yeah. It's timeless insofar as when you watch it, it won't feel dated. It'll feel like a period piece. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, for but me, but it's I'm not saying... timeless insofar as I don't know when this is. Yeah, it I do. felt it felt more 30s for me than 30s. than mid 60s. It has a very noirish feel, which yeah. ties in with uh, and. Janos Kaminski uh, oversaw the lighting even though he wasn't necessarily being cinematographer mm. and again was nudging it towards noir yeah. which uh, the music kind of plays into at times because mm. it's but like it, a detectives and there's a lot of thugs snooping around for things and there's yeah. a, it's, it's a bit more violent than you'd expect and, and there's more danger than you'd expect from mm. a family film but it's a Spielberg family film yeah. which and is it, in keeping I, with what he does I do think that your time frame for it does fit very much with uh, the comparisons to Catch Me If You Can because it does have that sort of um, and and that's kind of noirish in its own right but it's a it's a lighter uh, more bouncy version of, of mm. a noir adventure Jazzy. and yeah and and so I think that's where the blend comes in aesthetically it looks very 30s to me mm. um, but the the feel of it as you're moving around does have that sort of slightly more bouncy 60s mm. vibe but the but I really liked the performances it's there's a, a a subtlety about it and a, a sweetness about it that makes it not it's not huge and intense and it doesn't drag people in and I suspect that's probably why it didn't make more than it did I, mean, I think you said it did 350 competently but it didn't like break any records mm. but I think it's it's a really nice in the nicest possible way your English you know? teacher just okay. called me no. she said to spank you my English teacher's dead <laughs> <laughs> Reaper. <laughs> the um, <laughs> it's very pleasant. It's a very enjoyable way to spend a couple of hours. The narrative of it is not wildly out there, but it's it's cohesive enough to keep you engaged and uh, and paying attention to it. But at the same time. There were a few times when my attention wandered to other stuff while we were watching it, but I never felt like I then got thrown out of the story and didn't know what was going on. So it's not overly complicated. It it has, I think, part of this is the is the Raiders feel, but with the Francis Drake stuff, it is kind of Raiders by way of Uncharted. I was going to wait for us to talk about Uncharted. Since they were making this beginning in 2006, it doesn't feel like they were copying Uncharted since Uncharted came out around about that same time. If you made the rundown using this filming technique, you'd basically be looking at Uncharted. Those two movies together are kind of like a brundlefly into Uncharted. What both of them are missing, though, are those moments in Uncharted where Drake gets called out or Elena gets called out or Sully gets called out and just that quiet moment of melancholy. Like There's a bit in the original Uncharted where uh, Drake realises that he's 
all done all this for nothing and that he isn't who he thinks he is or or the whole uh, Francis Drake has effectively let him down hundreds of years late it's a Francis Drake story again mm-hmm. his name is Drake because of his ancestor yeah. and there's that moment that just gets you which makes the Uncharted games feel very cinematic because they have the same kind of flow of, of, of Pixar just in terms of like You've got your introduction, and you're sweeping into your, your, you know, right big adventure thing, and then there's that moment when it all kind of falls apart before they then gear up for the final push. Mm. And Tintin lacks that, and that is a shame. I feel like neither of us were really fully engaged with Tintin mm. or Haddock as characters in terms, in terms of, of their yeah. learning something. This felt like an episode in their escapades. In terms of characterization, there's there's not really a sense that the characters have much in the way of an internal life. Mm. Um, and that's forgivable. And considering, by the way, characters. how much we got out of the Indiana Jones series, yeah. Yeah. that's actually quite an absence. Indeed. And that's it's perfectly acceptable for your fringe characters, but I'd like to think that you'd be able to get something into at least your central character. But There's Tintin n- feels like a cartoon character who's solving mysteries. Yeah. Uh, like an intrepid boy who's smart. It never feels patronising. Um, and he's, uh, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a great lead. And uh, But he doesn't have that, like, he's not funny in that, like, you said, is that Tom Holland? And I said, that's perfect. Because Tintin is Jamie Bell. Tom Holland, Peter Parker, Spider-Man, was who I thought Bernie was all the way through watching the original Rocket Man. Bernie was played by Jamie Bell. Both Tom Holland and Jamie Bell have played Billy Elliot. Billy Elliot in the film for Jamie Bell and on stage for Tom Holland. It's like they're big and little brothers. It's so weird. But Holland has this natural humour to him, which Bell doesn't quite have. It feels like Bell has a, a little bit more of a quiet and maybe a little bit more dramatic pain mm. in there that he's ready to give although I'm sure Holland can access that and Tom Holland is playing Nathan Drake if this film eventually happens maybe he'll be playing well he's supposed to be playing young Nathan Drake <laughs> now he'll be playing Nathan Drake yeah. if it eventually gets made he'll be playing like old, old Nathan, Nathan Drake, Drake. Yeah. maybe he'll be playing Nathan's dad or Sully mm. also Tom Holland was about 12 when this was made yes there is that but here's the thing this lacks that Marvel level of snap for the character. That, that level of, I want to see this guy come back again. And I will tell you for why, there is no sequel. Mm. If people were like, I want to see this character come back again, then he would have. Yeah. And it's a shame because decades, decades of comic books, he is huge around Europe, Tintin. And it kind of came to an end. I think it was like the late 70s that they stopped making new Tintin stuff. I'm sure there have been revivals. But obviously with Hergé dying in 1983, it's kind of like with Asterix. It, it, it's so tied to Goscony and Uderzo that it, it takes a big resurgence to make things huge. Like with the Muppets, those were so tied to Jim Henson. And he died almost exactly the same time as the best Muppets thing ever got made, which is Christmas Carol. And they had to do that without him. And then there was that amazing resurgence in 2010, 2011 with the Muppets. And then since then, eh, 
There was Muppets Most Wanted. There was that The Office-style Muppets thing, which I'm told gets better. Um, and there's this new Muppets on YouTube thing. But it is really hard to bring back something which was previously big in its time and then maintain that. Mm, yeah, especially something that has a childlike innocence about it, which yeah. Tintin does, which Asterix does, which the Muppets did. You take cell phones out of Tintin, kids are checking their cell phones. It, <laughs> it's, it's difficult to have them current without making it feel like they're just trying to keep up with the kids. And it's difficult to- Did you to just say them... with the kids? Yes, I did. It was a <laughs> deliberate choice. Or have them in their original, slightly naive format and risk that they just won't land with, yeah. a, with a modern audience. It is very, very difficult. I, I don't imagine... Here's another example. They're never going to make a Rupert movie. <laughs> you know what? I can tell you why they're never going to make a Rupert movie. Because I had filed Rupert in the land of the forgotten mm -hmm. in, in Inside Out. You know, he was down there in the pit. Yeah. His ball hadn't fizzled out entirely, but when you said Rupert, I had to go, oh, for fuck's sake. And I had to get one, like, a, 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 the claw to go, and then pick Rupert, the Rupert back, memory. and then drop it into my frontal lobe for my various emotions, or, like, what 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 examines uh, fr Frontal lobe is thoughts, is my logical, thoughts. rational thoughts. To re-examine Rupert and go, oh, yeah, he's a bear who wears a sweater. Mm. And yellow check trousers. How do you make that something kids like? I mean, you, you could do that for little baby kids mm. now. The Adventures of Rupert. Do like soft animation or flash animation mm. or something. But probably best not to make Rupert like Teen Titans Go. No. <laughs> no. But that's the thing. If it's not adaptable to be constantly made to go to appeal to what the kids do now... Mm. I mean, like the Ninja Turtles have a really good way of um, of being able to, to constantly update the way that Bond does, although yeah, Bond's being the, strained. In anything years. I've I've kind of noticed this over the years. Anything that has true longevity yeah. has the ability to reinvent itself. Sonic not, the goddamn Hedgehog. <laughs> not to follow fads necessarily, um, because that's not the same thing at all. That's just desperately harping after popularity. But something that can genuinely have a new uh, design and a new aesthetic and yeah. a new a new narrative uh, principle that fits with what people want in that moment. Mm. This also made me think, watching this, this feels so much like indie that when they eventually do do that indie five, mm. would we be that upset if it was an animated one? If it was done like this. So you've got old Harrison Ford turning up like this, and and like they're, they're like, right, we've we've ever so slightly pitched your voice down, and we've degravelled it by about thirty percent. So now he just sounds like he did in like the the, the mid nineties, and we've done an Indiana Jones adventure set in the late forties, early fifties, and then you can have indeed leaping onto cars and things and make it feel photorealistic, mm. and it's like. This is actually indie, but to do that, Steve, and I would love it to be Steve, would have to go back to Raiders, bring in Yanis, or, or, or um, who uh, was the uh, DP for Raiders? Bring in Douglas Slocum. Oh no, he died in 2016. Reaper, again, you fucker. Okay, maybe Yanis Kaminsky on this one. <laughs> and basically get them 
to... Because if you remember, in 1981, Indy was out of time already. They were doing a Saturday morning serial in the 80s and deliberately throwing back to adventures and serials from decades before. Now they would be doing deliberate throwbacks to a deliberate throwback. Mm. But if you make it feel authentic and your camera movements are more stable and they they feel more like you're actually there in the desert or wherever Indy is, then rather than roller coastering it, you can actually make it feel like, shit, that stuntman nearly got killed. And even if they didn't, because the car's just a, a, a cage with balls attached to it and it's not actually moving. I feel like as long as you kept the camera movements in line with that level of classic adventure, you could make something that people would feel recaptured Indiana Jones. In a way that watching a 70-year-old Harrison Ford trading off with 40-year-old stuntmen... I mean, the set itself is kind of a big closed studio and everyone's wearing balls all over them. But there are ways, I'm certain, of advancing performance capture to deliver something that we've never quite seen before but doesn't just feel like a theme park ride Mm. and there's an immersiveness to it the other thing about Tintin is it was filmed in 3D Uh, Spielberg said uh, that previously before whenever he shoots on film he always keeps one eye closed because he's watching it in 2D with this he was watching it in 3D I don't like 3D and you already know that that's notorious for it but it is worth mentioning the immersiveness of the worlds and that the world itself looks astonishingly textured and they deliberately evaded being stylized on purpose because they wanted to make it feel like this was a romp around Europe of that time. Mm. And that totally translates to indie. So while Tintin is not going to grab punters and get people back to the cinema, and while old ass Indy is going to run all the risks that Crystal Skull did plus extra ones because we're now 15 years later I feel like there's a way of doing it that will be satisfying and even quite profound for an animated film that would normally just seem like a romp yeah and that's all that's uh, Tintin is Fully recommended for a, uh, a extremely enjoyable uh, uh, afternoon. Globe trotting and treasure hunting. Bring the kids. It's a great Sunday afternoon movie, actually. Mm, yeah. you, you don't have to be riveted to it. It's following clues, picking up mysteries. Simon Pegg and uh, Nick Frost are there as Thompson and Thompson, these two, oh, telly how, type Interpol uh, agents, and they're amusing. Uh, Toby Jones is there, Dobby, as this... Um, nervous kleptomaniac who's got this fantastic physical performance in it but it feels like the threads of the whole story it doesn't really matter where they go because you're kind of just sort of along for the ride Um, Daniel Craig is also commendable as this sort of moustache twirling villain also like I haven't really talked about how Andy Serkis kind of made Captain Haddock sound like this the whole time but like really gave him kind of a bluster Uh, Although they do kind of play on his alcoholism, which it is, for laughs a lot. Like, he he keeps a plane in the air by breathing his 50% proof breath into its fuel tanker. And I was reminded of Mad Max Fury Road. (laughs) The whole, like, sense of being propelled through this. It's not really a hangover movie, but it is 
a like I said a, a Sunday afternoon matinee maybe it just it, it has that matinee energy to it yeah. after I finished the edit on this one I got talking to our buddy Greg Downing from the Through the Wind Door podcast, which you should all be listening to because it's the new century fan cast that goes just as deep as School of Movies. Turns out he's a massive Tintin fan. So I don't normally do this, but I let someone else take the oars. Alex asked me to talk a little bit on how well people are characterized in the 2011 Tintin movie. And as someone with a lot of experience with Tintin since I was small... I'll do my best to bring some further insight to the proceedings. Very briefly, the personal context is that Tintin was my very first comic. My father would read them to me when I was around two or three. I owned several books of the series, and would sometimes spend long hours rereading the entire oeuvre in the library. And even though it's been a long time since those halcyon days of youth, much of the imagery and elements of that world are still etched in my brain. When the movie itself begins, the opening sequence is a dynamic animation of Hergé's art style, sans character detail, that incorporates several notable set pieces and symbols that longtime fans of the series will be familiar with. The first scene also includes Tintin being drawn by a street artist meant to resemble the creator himself, with several other drawings of notable characters throughout the series being displayed on an A-frame in the background. Overall, it's clear that this movie was made with a lot of love for the original work. But we're here to talk about the characterization. So how do they measure up? The short answer is pretty darn well. But that comes with a big asterisk. The Adventures of Tintin has always been a graphic novel that has a dual flavor of action, adventure, and comedy. Brendan Fraser's The Mummy crossed with Scooby-Doo. There's plenty of danger and gunfights, traps and villains, mystery and drama, but there's also a lot of pratfalls and visual comedy, as often portrayed by the antics of Tintin's canine companion Snowy, the bumbling Scotland Yard detectives Thompson and Thompson, or the sometimes competent and sometimes foolish Captain Haddock. All three get full reign to shine in Spielberg's movie, once again showing that the folks that put this together were pretty darn familiar with the Tintin playbook. From the comedy antics with the cat, to the interactions with the pickpocket, to literally any scene with Captain Archibald Haddock, these were either lifted directly from the original novels or heavily based on or inspired by existing elements from same. Mind, the property is not without its problems. The history of Hergé and his politics is too long and complicated to get into here, so in brief, several of the comic's early works contain especially worrisome depictions of non-white characters, such as American Indians in Tintin Goes to America, and Africans in Tintin in the Congo. I was too young to think about this critically back in my day, and by the time I noticed this I had moved on to form more nuanced media. Fortunately, Hergé was so prolific that most of his stories can be remade for a modern audience with only modest changes, while avoiding the ones that would be severely backwards or tone-deaf for 21st century audiences. The 
comics were aimed at children, so while guns are used by both heroes and villains, their presence in the story was more used as akin to tools for things like shooting out tires, and in combat they functioned more like fencing weapons. Shootouts often happened with no one being killed, guns were held on people to make them surrender, that sort of thing. Death would happen rarely, usually only as a specific plot point. Spielberg clearly continued this tradition for the movie, as we will see Tintin pick up or have a gun, but never use it on others, even when he himself is being fired upon, choosing instead to either flee, engage in fisticuffs, or use his gun as a tool to break things, or in one case disable a plane. Even when guns are not used, combat is still usually non-lethal. About the only change in this regard from the source material is how the movie depicts the final fate of the pirate, Red Rackham. You'll notice so far that I haven't actually talked about the characters themselves, and, well, there's a reason for that. Because as much as I have a nostalgic love for this piece of media that I grew up with, well, there isn't a lot of there there. In the books, Tintin is an earnest young reporter with a Boy Scout ethos, his curiosity and love of adventure leading him into unusual worlds and dangerous waters over and over. On the face of it, his interest in pursuing a story for the sake of journalism would seem to be an impetus for these adventures, and the movie does allude to that, his office filled with headlines and articles referring to other storylines from other Tintin graphic novels. Imagine Elena Fisher from Uncharted, but going on adventures by herself, solving mysteries, taking down criminals, and then writing about it afterwards. But in all honesty, that's it. The thing that drives the story in Tintin books is the story itself, as well as the action. Tintin is bland. He doesn't have character growth or arcs. He remains committed to his values in a way that would make Steve Rogers proud, but that means that Tintin himself isn't very compelling as a character, and the movie does a tidy job of recreating that simple fact. The same is more or less true for the characterization of many of the secondary and tertiary familiar faces in the movie. Nick Frost and Simon Pegg do a wonderful job of voicing the bumbling Thompson and Thompson, but they are still comedy, one-note characters. Bianca Castafiore, a recording character in the comic, is barely on screen long enough to characterize her at all, and I hope if and when there is a new Tintin movie, she might get a chance to be more than a plot device. If anyone gets to be nuanced and complex, it would be Captain Haddock himself, the Watson to Tintin Sherlock, complete with alcoholism and his litany of PG-rated swears. And here, the characterization diverges slightly from the original, and honestly, for the better. As may have been pointed out, the movie borrows heavily from three different books in the series, so that we can see Tintin and Haddock meet, find out how Haddock is connected to this particular story, and then have the captain help Tintin resolve it, since he is invested in bringing the villain to justice and restoring his good name. Along the way, we even see the recurring antagonist Captain Allen, introduced the same way as in the books, as Haddock's treacherous first mate. And since Tintin doesn't have a character arc, that means one is imposed on Haddock. But honestly, 
because of the stories and scenes the movie borrows from, it doesn't feel ham-handed. In the graphic novels, Haddock's love of alcohol is usually played for comedy, or to add complications to events, but it's never really resolved. In one story, he may swear off alcohol because it's caused too much trouble already, only to have it come up again in a later book. In the movie, it's a part of the pathos of a single arc, where in order to live up to the heroic example of his ancestor and save the day, he has to stop relying on alcohol to get him through stressful situations or drown out his anxieties. Obviously, if and when a second movie gets made, we'll see how the writers handle this, and if he backslides or not. And maybe we'll also see if other members of the cast get a greater depth of character and become more than the one-note examples from the parent media. As it stands, the movie is an entertaining romp that is true to its origins. It just so happens that those origins don't include rich inner lives for our protagonist or much of its recurring cast. So there you have it, folks, a long-term Tintin fan's take on Tintin. Next up, the BFG. It was the witching hour when the boogeyman comes out. The girls say the witching hour arrives at midnight. I think it comes at three in the morning, when I'm the only one left awake, like now. Giant country. hearing all the secret whisperings of the world. Rance. Sophie, hide. Does you have any little pet? (laughs) 
This film emerged in summer 2016, around about the same time as Batman v Superman, colon, Dawn of Justice, Captain America, colon, Civil War, Deadpool, Suicide Squad, X-Men, colon, Apocalypse. It feels like a relic of a bygone age, like Hook or The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, or maybe the first Harry Potter movie, which Spielberg was originally set to direct. And this film is noteworthy because it's a Disney movie and Spielberg set up DreamWorks in opposition to Disney. It is very rare that he works with them. The Indiana Jones related stuff in the Disney parks is unusual and them owning LucasArts now kind of changes the game. It's based on a beloved childhood favourite by one of the world's most renowned children's authors. It is charming and pleasant and frequently beautiful to look at. It's remarkably faithful to the book, logical and heartfelt in its additions to the text. It's inventively and lovingly directed by maybe the most widely recognised household name, synonymous with high-quality family entertainment in cinema, scored by a living legend, and it is a... Sweet-natured joy from start to finish. And nobody gave a flying fart about it then or now, and probably ever. It made $192 million on a $140 million budget, and that makes it categorically a box office bomb. To put things in perspective, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them made $813 million, making it one of the lowest grossing of J.K. Rowling's films at the time. Even The Jungle Book made almost a billion that year, and nobody ever talks about The Jungle Book, aside from that brief period when people were puzzling over the other live-action performance capture-assisted Jungle Book film by Andy Serkis. We are talking about a special kind of zero forks given for a huge movie. We asked around on Twitter and nobody nibbled. We were trying to just get a guest for this one, someone who loved the BFG with every fibre of their being and nobody nibbled. It's almost as though the film was never made at all. So now we are going to take you through the experience of watching it. Just to... It'll what is most likely be the first time for most of you. We're going to have to assume a couple of things, like a lot of you will have read the book but or had been read the book when you were children and then for whatever reason, didn't watch the film. I feel like I'm I'm browbeating you all for not seeing it. I don't want this to be me disapproving of you folks. I mean, you, like, you're here listening to it, uh, to it now. Uh, it's it's more... I've got a section at the end as to, to why... Reasons why I think this probably didn't do huge business. But I'll save that to the end. But the fact that you're listening now suggests we can at least get this to new audiences and, uh, you know, maybe get people to give it a second chance. It feels like Tintin in in that it's from that sort of mid twentieth century, um, and 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 being released in the in twenty sixteen when everyone was like super into sci fi and, and and modern tech, just felt like well, why would we like Tintin? So I'm, I'm I'm amazed Tintin made as much money as it did, and I'm not amazed Tintin hasn't had a sequel. Yeah, I I felt there was a lot to compare between this and Tintin as well. Mm, which and, is why we're doing the double bill. Yeah, and the that sense of it being out of its own time fits a lot with that too. Tintin, we mentioned, feels kind of 50s, 60s, and the there's a lot of 
visual cues in the world building for the BFG that sort of place it somewhere in the maybe late 60s to early 80s. There's a specific reference that places it in the early 80s further in, in the movie, mm. but the in terms of what's around... It could be anywhere in this rather vague time period, although that is partly because not a lot changed in Britain in yeah, that time period. For many, many uh, decades, we yeah. didn't we didn't want to stylistically change. There was a yeah, basically from like the fifties through to maybe sort of nineteen ninety six, Britain kind of wanted to stay as it was, and then there was a big leap forward, specifically for London. Yeah, but it, for the most part, things like clothes look a little bit vague as to when they could be, mm. and um, like Adam. Godly in one of the opening scenes is wearing a leather jacket, but he's also got his trousers tucked into his socks, and a couple of the guys with him are wearing flat caps. Um, so again, it's kind of a eh, little bit vague. There's there's cars that look sixties, uh, but they're old and beaten up, mm. so it's it's difficult to put put a finger on how long they've been around. There was a mini there, which is quintessentially a British and linked with mm. the Italian job forever. Yeah, yeah. Although the mini changed style. Um, specifically, I think, in the late 90s. Like I said. Uh, So the BFG, short for Big Friendly Giant, is a 1982 children's book written by Welsh novelist Roald Dahl and illustrated by Quentin Blake. Uh, And it's an expansion of a short story from Dahl's 1975 book, seven years earlier, Danny the Champion of the World, which... Uh, received a uh, made-for-TV movie adaptation in the late 80s with uh, Jeremy Iron and uh, um, turf-supporting Robbie Coltrane. Uh, the book is dedicated to Dahl's late daughter, Olivia, who died of measles encephalitis at the age of seven in 1962. Uh, and Sophie is named after his granddaughter, Sophie Dahl. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a great proponent of childhood vaccinations throughout his life because of what happened to Olivia. Understandable. So I suppose anti-vaxxers like Jim Carrey would drive him insane. So oh, yes. imagine if Jim Carrey got to play the BFG. I think Roll would spin in his grave and then just emerge uh, zombie-like and, um, and, and drag Jim down to hell where he belongs. Um <laughs> Oh, no, at least just send him to limbo. It's fine. Because, you know, you've got to think about the amount of people that he's harmed as a result of the of his wrongheadedness and public decrying of science that's there to save people's lives. Jenny McCarthy can accompany him. Anyway, I'm in a dark mood. As of 2009, the novel has sold 37 million copies in the UK alone, with more than 1 million copies sold around the world every year. Not that that helped. An adaptation by Cosgrove Hall, the British animation house behind Danger Mouse and Count Duckula, was shown on TV in Britain in 1989. Yeah. That explains why David Jason played the BFG. With David Jason, who provided the voices of both Danger Mouse and Count Duckula, providing the voice of the BFG, and Amanda Root as the voice of Sophie. They started out uh, doing it rotoscoped, um, and they, they specifically rotoscoped the Queen, but found that they were able to do keyframe animation on Sophie herself, and uh, that was quite beloved. I remember it being like a Christmas I thing. I adored and, it, absolutely yeah. adored it. Some of the music in it was just beautiful. Yeah, and it had that sort of sparkly magic to it that uh, Cosgrove Hall, when they when they try, mm. can... Well, I can't remember a time when Cosgrove Hall have ever not tried, actually, thinking about it. Mm. Um, and they also did Wind in the Willows, which was something very special to me when I was a kid. It had that feel to it, which we'll talk about later, that the BFG shares. It's very Harry Potter flavoured as well. When Specifically, when the BFG is sneaking around London, I was like, okay, so is he going to 
go via Diagon Alley because it felt like this is definitely that um, that world. And I, I wish I could stop comparing things to Harry Potter, but it is ultimately the Star Wars of a generation. And to erase it entirely from my frames of reference is tricky. Yeah, no, I can understand that. In terms of the comparison, I would say the films are a, a, a more... Uh, relevant comparison than the books because obviously the setting is something that uh, uh, pulling from the same inspiration which is London in the early 80s and we did mention that the orphanage that Sophie is living in looks very similar to the one that Tom Riddle has left at which is called Wool's Orphanage I love the fact that Sophie is living in orphanage it's just orphanage it's it's the orphanage when she puts the post on the rack the letters are addressed to the the orphanage orphanage. so that's very definitely on purpose London just has the one the orphanage Oh, right, from the, the, from the Dickens books. Mm. And uh, you pointed out that every single movie now, because you said, you know, this is a period piece, so it feels like it. Yeah. And then you said every single movie is now a pre-COVID period piece. Yes. Because as we watch it now, everything we're watching is in the before times. Yeah. Absolutely. And any films that they make now are either going to have to incorporate post-pandemic life or be set before the pandemic or be set in a world where the pandemic didn't never happen. happened in which case it's sci-fi mm. but there is a marked difference between kind of glossing over tragic events that occurred in real life that we all ended up reeling from but that don't really play into the story and films that literally have to pretend that the human race didn't suffer from covid for years because mm. it's going to take years folks i think strap in one thing it's worth bearing in mind is there are some things which are too big to address in fiction directly mm. at least immediately after and that's possibly why you see um more stuff that is uh, a parallel or um, a reference to or something like that without directly addressing. But there is a very definite line as far as 9-11 was concerned because you have uh, films that were made in New York with the Twin Towers in the skyline Mm -hmm. and films that were made without it. Mm -hmm. Films that were delayed because they involved two towers Twin Towers scenes, Spider-Man 2, Men in Black 2, and had to be re-edited to no longer include those scenes. Anyway, um, let's talk about sweeter things than 9-11, shall we? Do. Okay, so Mark Rylance as the BFG, in comparison to the only other version that we've uh, seen, because there was there have been various stage play adaptations, and I'm sure there was a Jack Anakanori, but... um, Compared with David Jason's uh, for the uh, animated version, I remember at the time people were applauding the animated version and using it kind of as a stick to hit this new one over the head with, which uh, made me sad. But um, others were reappraising the uh, uh, the old animated version and saying that it holds up really pretty well. Mm. As a... Okay, I would say this, and I haven't seen it for a while, but I watched it enough when I was a kid that I can remember its tone, some of the specific scenes, pretty Mm. clearly. And I would say that David Jason did a wonderful job, and the... I is the BFG! Yeah, that. There's not another giant like me in all a giant country. I is the big, friendly giant. 
The BFG. Uh, that's me. <laughs> Does you have a name? Yes. My, my name's Sophie. Sophie? And very kind of like big and boisterous, but he is a friendly uncle. Yeah. And the Cosgrove Hall animation is a fantastic adaptation of the story with a definite eye on little kids. Yeah. It's a pretty close translation of what happens in the book. There's a little bit that's thinned out and things are changed around a little bit. A couple and, extra musical numbers added. Yeah, obviously there were no musical numbers in the book. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, they had musical numbers in Shining the Chocolate Factory. Oh, good point, actually. Which yeah. were preserved for the Burton version. I had visions And changed of... to Oompa Loompa for the <laughs> Wilder version. By the way, Roald Dahl never lived to see the Burton version, but he hated the Gene Wilder Did version. Did he? Oh, dear. I would say possibly because um, of the, the re- reduction in all of his dreams of like you know i would love it to look like this and then a lot of things look quite small and cheap Mm. um but i I think the end where where wilder goes fucking ballistic at charlie Mm. probably upset him well bear in mind roald dahl couldn't bear americans there is that too yes yes um you can tell from the way he portrays Mike TV in that particular story. If you go digging into his Wikipedia page, you'll find that there's several types of people that Roald Dahl didn't like. Yeah. Moving swiftly on. Okay, so to go back to the Cosgrove Hall adaptation, like I said, perfectly wonderful in terms of the, the depth that it covered. Rylance's performance is nuanced and deep and thorough and... The film as a whole may not quite hit the echelons of some of Spielberg's other work in terms of how it would appeal to older people, but it is definitely well beyond the this is perfect for six to eight year olds. Chiddlers. Yeah. That I think the, uh, the, ad- the animated version is more squarely aimed at. The major difference between their two performances is that Rylance is always worried. But why did you bring me here? Why did you take me? Well, I had to take you. Because the first thing you'd be doing, you'd be scuddling around and yodling the news that you were actually seeing a giant. And then there would be a great rumple dumpus, wouldn't there? And all the human beings would be rummaging and whiffling for the giant what you saw and getting wildly excited and then they'd be locking me up in a cage to be looked at with all the squiggling, you know, hippo dumplings and crocodile dillies and jiggy rafts. And then there would be a gigantic look-see giant hunt for all of the boys. I won't tell. No one would listen to me anyway. I'm an untrustworthy child. I am continuously impressed with what this man can do with a very slight, very subdued performance. It's almost hypnotic how much he doesn't act with a capital A. Mm. He embodies the characters you know how like daniel day lewis is always uh, praised for, for for really like method acting the his characters and, and doing them very intensely and he does have that uh, similar kind of hypnotic feel about him uh, like when he was lincoln in gangs of new york you can't take your fucking eyes off him and in um you're, you're tilting you your head yeah you might want to but 
He demands it. And in Phantom Thread, he demands it. Mm. Rylance does more, closer to what Day-Lewis did in Lincoln, which is to be very subdued. But Rylance always does that. Mm. And I was watching him thinking, where have I seen this done before? And the two actors that I, I felt most do this, which is to totally embody the character and then perform them in a usually fairly slight way, are Viggo Mortensen, mm-hmm. who played Aragorn in a way that when he had to shout... Felt he felt seemed like he was really uncomfortable, you know. Tonight these hills will be swarming with orcs. Like I really don't want to have to be shouting to you mm. at this point. Not does your heart tell you that Frodo is alive? Uh, to a degree, McKellen does that as well, but he can also go wizard. You shall not pass. He does, but McKellen has a thing. Right? Okay, I'm going to say a thing now that is probably going to piss off a lot of people, but so be it. it. I don't like Daniel Day Lewis. I don't like him at all. Oh my God! Get off the film. I don't like the way he performs. Um, I don't like the way he places himself in characters. Whenever I'm watching Daniel Day Lewis, I can never forget that I'm watching Daniel Day-Lewis. What about in The Crucible when he goes, I have given you my soul, leave me my name! Yeah, and that's what I'm talking about. Because, (laughs) yes, his performance in Lincoln was understated, but there's still that sort of... I drink your milkshake. There's a... I drink it all. There's a thing... Do you hear me, Eli, you boy? Shush. There's (laughs) There's a thing that he tends to do, which is... It, it, there, there comes a point, and in some of his characters, there's lots of them, and in some, there's only one or two. But there always seems to come a point where he has to fill the screen. He has to take command of every inch of real estate that he has in front of him. <laughs> it's chewing the scenery by it any other name. Scenery. And this is the thing it's fine. It's absolutely fine. And if that is what you like, and for some people, that is the mark of a really quality actor, to me, it's a camera hog and it's somebody who desperately, desperately wants to be on the stage, but movies was all they could get their hands on. And somebody You like, know Day Lewis could command the stage should he oh, so he choose. Oh, he absolutely could. That's the thing. That that ability to project is about monopolizing the attention of an audience. Still fucks me off when they do it on stage. What? It's just I don't need that. I I find it very frustrating, and it's and and especially when everybody then starts waffling on about Oscars, it gets me annoyed. But anyway, Mark Comer described his Daniel Plainview as mm. being somewhere between Agent Smith, yeah. and Tony the Tiger. Yeah. So if yeah. I say that I'm an oil man, you will agree <laughs> I'm great. <laughs> but this is this is the thing. Hugo Weaving as Agent Smith was doing precisely that, but he was having fun with it. <laughs> Helen does it, but because I instinctively have this feeling that he's he would really be much more at home on the stage, that feels more um, it feels more authentic to him. Like he's brought the stage to the to screen. To the screen, yeah, that is a really good way of putting it. Yes, thank you. Um, whereas when Daniel Day Lewis does it, it just feels like he's jumping up and down like a three year old, going, "Everybody, look at me." He's not even in this film, but we're using him to but contrast. Yeah, with he is the Mark contrast Rylance. with Mark Rylance. Now, my, Mark Rylance does precisely the opposite of that which is that he he doesn't it doesn't matter to, or it doesn't seem to I'm making massive assumptions here it doesn't seem to matter to him what he looks like in the role I have known actors I have worked with actors um, who 
did the thing where they make sure that they look right in the in the mirror and they have to know that they're projecting the mm. right image before they can be the character. And that's the opposite to me of how a character should come about. To me, you you get the feeling of the character internally. This is why I've always had a big thing about shoes. Once you're wearing the right shoes for that character, mm. so you can feel how that character moves, how they stand, what their posture With is. With Aragorn, it was the sword. Yes, absolutely. Props and things, really crucial to that as well. But but to me, and again, this is, you know, your mileage may vary. Everybody's got a different way of doing this. Everybody's got a different set of criteria that they like for this and that is fine but for me the the performance needs to come from inside if the actor feels like the character to me the character will then come through regardless of what they actually look like on the outside Philip Seymour Hoffman did this shit all the time. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And it's it's another reason why I don't tend to be that blown away by um, performances that seem over-reliant on hair and makeup. Um, oh. and you cannot negotiate with a tiger when your head is already in its mouth! And there it is. Um, Gary because... Oldman won <coughs> Best Actor for... For his wig. The Darkest Hour, the same year that Andy Serkis concluded his Caesar performance trilogy with War for the Planet of the Apes. And I would posit that while Caesar was heavily reliant on digital hair and makeup, mm. the performance was far, far better on a betterometer mm. than Gary Oldman's blustering, shouting, historical figure, of course we're going to give it an And Oscar. he had to have faith. Circus had to have faith that when this went up on the screen, it would look right. He was leaving that in the hands of somebody else. And that actually ties in with the BFG. Yep. Because Rylance is Rylance doing, is the, doing same the same thing. Yeah. In that there is, like, he's there, but th this is a very augmented version of Rylance. Yeah. So honestly, I didn't expect Rylance to... Well, this was my first encounter with him. I hadn't yet seen Bridge of Spies, uh, and Ready Player One was several years off, and I believe he's a television actor before that, So, and he would have been in the sort of serious TV that I don't watch. So this was my first encounter with him, so I didn't know what to expect. I think had I seen Bridge of Spies, I'd have gone, oh, this is going to be worthy of note. I was blown away by how much he wasn't trying to blow me away. I remember very distinctly in the cinema thinking, wow, this is really low-key. He's holding everything in. He's, he's not like this boiling, roiling sea of animations. Uh, it's more like he can't put words to what he's feeling. Mm, yeah. There are... Okay. Without wanting to get too clinical about it, there are behaviours that are exhibited by both Sophie and the BFG. They're different sets of, of ways that they behave, but they mark them out from the people that they are surrounded by. Mm -hmm. Like most Roald Dahl hero characters who are seem to be surrounded by scumbags. Yes, absolutely. And there, honestly, there are a lot of parallels between Sophie, particularly this Sophie, and, and Matilda. Matilda. I love that we both went there. Yeah. Um, obviously, Matilda has shit parents, Sophie has no parents, but she is being raised by a shit orphanage mistress. Um, but the... Again, the, the actress that they had to play, Sophie, Ruby, uh, Ruby Barnhill, 
brings a conviction to some unusual ways of being for a little girl that young. Yeah. But she's, in, in her first few moments on screen, I picked up high levels of wariness, attention to detail, caution, sleeplessness, precision. Um, she's very bold. I wouldn't necessarily call it brave exactly, but the way that she feels totally confident in telling the drunks out back of the orphanage to shut up and piss Pipe off. Pipe down, yeah. Um, there's just there's something about her that that seems to make it as though she knows she doesn't fit with the world but she hasn't had it beaten into her yet that that's her floor and not the world's floor does that make sense mm-hmm. and the bfg has so much about him that makes him very very different from the other giants in his world but he's older and more experienced than she is and he has internalised a lot of those differences and although he considers himself to be better than the other giants ethically he's still very um, anxious and wary about it all albeit I think in big picture terms it's got more to do with the fact that he's terrified they're going to kill him one of these days We're late to the party on explaining the the plot, but just for those of you who haven't seen it or read the book and had the um, pleasure of that story specifically as a child, uh, Sophie is an orphan who uh, is snatched away in the dead of night because she sees a giant creeping around London and uh, he takes her back to his lair. She thinks he's going to eat her, but he's quite affronted by this because... And they handled this pretty well in the uh, uh, movie. He was one contemporary reference shy of saying you need to watch those microwaving aggressings i is a big friendly giant (laughs) the idea being don't assume that like all other giants i'm going to eat you because it turns out there's nine other giants just outside his door who he almost considers to be brothers and uh, they have a sort of fraternal relationship but they are all runnings out over the worlds to gobble down chitters every night and he is much more supportive of them in this than he is in the book. He's like they come to him to have their boo boos fixed, and, mm. um, and so they they clearly see him as some kind of source of healing and help. Mm. But he's an outsider to that group. Mm. He has his own home. They just burrow under the ground and uh, sleep during the day, and then just go running off at night, eat children, and then come back and sleep again. They are T Rexes. Mm. You know, advanced carnivores able to specifically hunt a specific prey that they actually, in the book, take a sadistic pleasure in chewing down. That was one real difference that I would highlight between the book and uh, the and this, which the animated movie was probably closer to the book, and mm-hmm. that is how horrible the giants are the 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 peril in this i feel has been considerably dialed back 
They're scary still to mm, kids, absolutely. but they don't go into gruesome detail, at least verbal gruesome detail, describing mm. the amount of children that they want to munch down and, yeah. and how tasty and crunchy their bones is. Yeah. Oh. But the the like in the in the Cosgrove Hall version, the animation on the giant, they are inhuman. Mm. They are just so terrifyingly hideous with jagged broken teeth and scarred eyes that they all don't look like really the ogre of Gormley Keep they, from yeah, Flight of Dragons absolutely terrifying whereas in this they're like we know they eat kids in theory but we never see it happen but... and they, they just look a bit sort of silly and they're scary because they're big and they're boisterous and they fight yeah but they are more conceptually terrifying than like uh, making it plain and clear mm. how literally terrifying they Absolutely, should be yeah which and is why it's a pg yeah and and without wanting to go into too much detail about stuff that's further on yeah uh the sequence in which they are defeated um is considerably dialed back. Oh yeah. It in this it's it's so quick. Yeah. It's just they're there and they get them and then it's done. And they snag them like Spider-Man. Exactly. So yeah, that's one bit that they missed out that's in the book, mm. which is the bit where Sophie has to stab one of them with the brooch that the queen gives her. Oh jeez. And there's actually there's a lot more about Jack the Giant Killer and a lot of headology that the BFG goes into regarding like they're all terrified of this mythological giant slayer, mm. and uh, he uses that and he's more cunning and a bit more sort of a, a plotter mm. than this version who seems even more friendly and gentle. Mm. Yeah, uh, there are there are classic elements throughout that will. Uh, um, you know, we can sort of cover now if if you wish the uh, the stealth mode and the traversal of London's actually very skillfully done. Uh, it, like that, it seems unlikely that the BFG himself could ever really come across as hard to spot, but mm. for some reason and somehow, but with some very clever shots and uh, seemingly this preternatural stealth sense that the BFG operates on, he's able to run rings around late night denizens of London who aren't able to spot him. Possibly because he's so big they wouldn't be looking for him. Yeah, and part of it is the cloak. The cloak is effectively made of shadow. Yeah, it's a Harry Potter invisibility cloak. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, the the way they've animated, or well, I don't know if animated is really the term that, that mm. you'd use, but the way the transitions between worlds has been filmed, I thought was absolutely inspired. Mm. It really did give a sense of um, London being layered on top of giant country, being layered on top of dream country, mm. the, the jumping backwards and forwards between the different places and how different they felt. It had a very cohesive world to it, albeit yeah. a, a fantastical one that, that asked you to... In the book, there's a really nice uh, point about at the end of the atlas, there's always a few blank pages and uh, those are for lands that haven't yet been discovered, which is wonderful to hear when you're uh, a kid in the 80s. You're like, wow. And then you've got Google Earth. You're like, no. So... <laughs> I was just about to say, now Google can zoom in on anything. Yeah. Um, but the BFG talks uh, himself in a, a, a form of language called gobblefunk, uh, which is wordplay reminiscent of Alex DeLarge from uh, Clockwork Orange. Mm. Now, in the book... 
And in the Cosgrove Hall version, it seems to be purely for fun and just, you know, uh, Roald Dahl was always a, a king of uh, being able to mess around with words and create nonsense words that still had a kind of meaning to them. He did it a lot. Snozwangers yeah. in um, uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And I, I read all of his books when I was a kid and then made sure that Lyra read them all when she was uh, younger. Um, but they're came a time when I realized I can't really in all good ethical conscience keep reading her this aloud without stepping in myself uh, because I am a massive fan of stories that take reality and then paint it with fantasy in a way which feels cohesive and that matches up Pan's Labyrinth, regular Labyrinth, there is a validity in that fantasy and what it can teach us. But there is a difference between doing that and saying, science is bullshit, especially now. But then there's things like telling kids when reading The Witches, don't have a bath, whatever you do. We're the ones who have to raise them rolled. If they smell like shit and start building up cheese in their crevices because of what you said, I'm going to step in and say, sorry, that writer's talking absolute Bollocks! Basic fucking human cleanliness is not something you can put a question mark on in fiction for children. And I love The Witches. Love the book, love the original movie. Really excited about this new movie. Uh, but um, this was the first example I felt that, like I said earlier, the BFG is talking in this way, not because it's just fun for the kids, but because he's trying to communicate something from inside and doesn't necessarily have the appropriate words for it mm. so is combining various words using a lot of onomatopoeia mm. yeah well i i always figured that it was i mean the giants the other giants all talk in a, a more extreme and broad version of of the bfg's language they also struggle with mm. um, well they don't struggle because they don't care but they don't use um correct language for things mm. They reminded me most of orcs in the uh, Jackson Wetter yeah. Lord of the Rings films. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I always figured that the BFG speaks more eloquently than they do because he hangs around humans long enough without just gobbling them up that he actually hears mm. them speak. Um, and he's, you know, taught himself to read a little bit, and and you know, there's a there's a bit of education going on there as well. But I think th a lot of it in in this is he didn't teach himself to read in this version. In this one, no, he didn't. Um, but uh, I think a lot of his communication style in this comes out of uh, Rylance's inhabitants of the character mm -hmm. and the uh, the desire to communicate but the shyness that holds him back from being able to do it clearly and precisely. And it's very sweet when that comes up against Sophie's precision and exactitude, because she is obviously a very smart little girl. And she starts off correcting him when he makes mistakes, but eventually kind of comes around to the idea that what he actually says is not as important as what he's trying to communicate. And as long as what he means is clear, it doesn't really matter what he says. Yeah. And uh, I noticed in this that uh, Sophie does start using gobblefunk mm -hmm. in order to communicate with him. She mirrors him to a degree to, yeah. to make him feel more at ease. Absolutely. And there's a, there's a couple of occasions where she'll do something... And not 
with any particular fanfare, but like when she puts on the um, the red velvet jacket, and it obviously freaks him out, and he doesn't say to her, "Take, Take it, it off. off," but she, the next time she's out of his sight, she turns it inside out. So that it doesn't have that same visual impact on him. Impact on him. Yeah. Which is an extremely uh, sharp-witted and very kind thing for somebody so young to figure out and to do. Mm. There's, uh, as we go along, I'm going to point out the couple of things that were added to uh, this as a story. One of them is the first tactical troggle humper. Uh, in the book, there's two. In this one, there's three. To express to Sophie quite how dangerous it would be to go outside and try and sneak away, the BFG purposefully uh, hits her with a nightmare of being caught and eaten by the flesh lump eater, which is distressing, but it's a good way of uh, illustrating to the kids the threat of the giants without them actually eating a child. Yes, it is. It's also... um something that underlines part of Sophie's character, which is that, to begin with, she's not scared of anything. Yeah. And the owner of the red jacket, and this was the thing that hit me the hardest when watching the film, because I realised what the, sh- the outline of what they were describing here. It would appear, and it's barely spoken of in but two scenes, um, that the BFG had a friend during the Victorian era who taught him to write, and was a young boy who was not scared of anything, you know, wrote a story called The BFG and Me, and he he, uh, he wrote about their adventures, but it was, from the sounds of it, a very fleeting uh, friendship because the boy was caught and eaten by one of the giants, I'm guessing the Flesh Lump Eater, which is absolutely horrific and incredibly sad. And Everything in Rylance's performance seems to be informed upon by that deep regret of a, of that happening when he was trying to protect the boy and he was unable to prevent it from occurring. It's it's an an additional angle to weave into the book that makes it something else. Mm. And to me it's a masterstroke because it gives a sense of time yeah. and a sense of purpose to the back and forth and it gives a reason for his fear for Sophie and for his eventual decision as to what Sophie needed to do. Mm. What it reminded me of, and I know obviously the, the, uh, the beats of the story aren't quite the same, uh, but Jackie paper and puff the magic dragon, because usually when we are engaged in fairy tales that are about, Uh, a child who has a mystical or magical creature as a friend, it's always from the child's perspective. My friend the giant, my friend the dragon. But in those stories, we see just these fleeting flashes of how does that feel for the magical creature to have this human companion that they can't keep forever because they're quote-unquote real and the magical creature is not. And therefore, they're eternal. They are of one world and the human is from the human world. Yeah. And uh, something happens as a result of that in this, which Roald Dahl wouldn't have written, I don't think. Uh, Even if asked about it, he would say, oh, I wouldn't want to be bothered with that. Which is that the BFG puts Sophie back. He gets to a point where he actually does care about her enough to not want her to be around. And he puts her back at the gate of the orphanage. And... 
this is a really difficult hole to have written yourself into because there's actually no reason for him to then pick her back up again and take her back to giant country, knowing what danger she's really in and how much he actually cares for her. And, you know, her caring for him, she ultimately needs to let that go. So it's almost like the movie comes to a dead stop and, well, there's the end of the film mm. right there. And it kind of has to jumpstart itself back in again. Yeah. I think there is there is another way that they could have got round it, but it would have kicked it out of that mild peril bracket, mm -hmm. um, which is that Sophie does, when she first turns up in Giant Country, try to make it clear to the BFG that she's not cross with him for taking her because where she lived was shit. The uh, orphanage was run by somebody who was completely incompetent. They weren't really looked after very well. She was locked in the cellar with rats. Yeah, there's punishments. Uh, there's Obviously, that could just have been her first quest, but she didn't have a, a small wooden sword. Indeed. Um, <laughs> Ten of them I need. Indeed, yes. Um, but it's... I think it would have required more emphasis about how unpleasant that childhood was, mm -hmm. and that possibly would have taken it beyond the... They didn't even fucking do that with Harry Potter. Remember how much they hop-skipped and jumped over how mm -hmm. shitty the Dursleys were? Absolutely. I remember oh, when he I lives in a cupboard, but it's not that bad. I first came away from the uh, the first version of the film, I was like, they went really easy on the Dursleys and made them just really silly. Yeah. When, uh, you know, originally, even the first book, I was like, I hate these people. Mm. These are abominable people. Yeah. But I think how they and do... And Joe obviously took a hell of a lot of inspiration from Roald Dahl. Yeah. Especially um, in the way she spins out bollocks. But I think how they did get out of this particular corner that they had painted themselves into, like you said, is in Sophie's response to this, which is less emphasis on the unpleasant world that she would have to go back to and a, a simple pleading with the giant to take her back because she doesn't want to be here because it's horrible. <laughs> and more... There is a, a huge amount of trust inherent in Sophie's next action, which is that she she knows deep down that the giant is still there, that the BFG is still outside. And she goes up to the balcony and jumps off. Interesting, because you said that that made Lois crazy when she does literally the same thing in the Donna Cutter Superman 2. Uh, Lois did it with no real evidence that Superman was anywhere near in broad daylight with all of her work colleagues around her <laughs> and a, a street full of people below. That she would splatter onto like a watermelon. Exactly. Um, but Sophie, <laughs> Sophie jumps and trusts that the BFG will catch her. Now, the environment that Sophie's grown up in, she has never had anybody that she could trust that completely before. So again... It adds that layer of this is a significant shift in not necessarily her character, not necessarily her personality, but in her outlook on the world. That now there is something out there, a parental figure, that she can put that much faith in. Hmm. So yeah, if they'd uh, emphasised how horrible the orphanage was, suddenly they have to make it so terrible that the BFG would weigh up do I drop her back off at her own, where she's down in the dark and dingy cellar, being nibbled on by raticates? Or do I keep her here, where the things what are gonna nibble on her are about 10,000 million times bigger than raticates? So you end up in this kind of ideological stalemate? Because, like, at least in the orphanage, she's not gonna get eaten. But it feels like he had to make the move to put her back, to make that 
decision of I've put you in more danger than you otherwise would have been and I now can trust you. It's, it's, it feels right that he does it and that he does it then. And then that she makes the decision, no, I want to be there in giant country. Which again, later on, he overrides in the right way and out of love. Why are you giving me a dream? You dropped your blanket. So they must know you was there. You's not safe with me, gal. So? You is not safe with me? <laughs> Never mind that now. There was a boy. He liked to read. He taught me how to read. You's wearing his little red jacket. Or use his lonely heart, just like I use yours. Then... He's seen me, like you did. So I had to take him Ipswich. I could have brought him back home, but then it'd be too late. Was the boy scared? Yeah. In the end. I'm not. Brave Sophie. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. And there's uh, an extended scene when he gets her back to um, uh, Giant Land in his cave, uh, where the other giants all search around for Sophie. Uh, and, you know, specifically the uh, flesh lump eater played by Jermaine Clement, with this weird combination of being really fun to watch and kind of terrifying. Mm, yes. What has you got in here, runt? Is you hiding something scrumptious? I'm having to do this myself because there's like two clips on YouTube. It was decreed, nobody shall see this film. No one shall know of it. And the absolute last thing we want to do is spread awareness of the film by allowing people to see clips of it on YouTube. Heaven forfend. Uh, and uh, Sophie's sneaking around. There's a painful level of feeling like it's a small child in a green screen environment running and jumping. And the later uh, action sequences when they're um, dragging away the giants on Chinooks, just before that, she's jumping and running. And it's probably it was probably supposed to feel like a kid's fun version of that whole one-take sequence in uh, the end of Children of Men, mm. uh, where the peril is avoided left, right, and center. But it actually reminded me most of the factory sequence in Attack of the Clones where Sophie's like going, oh, I'm going to run away from this thing that's definitely going to be painted in later, and I'm going to run away from this thing off to the side, and oh no, I'm being picked up, so I'm going to turn into a cartoon and then jump out of the sack, and then I'll be returned to my human form. See, this was the bit that felt the most like Tintin to me, so I guess mm. my brain kind of split the difference between those two. Well, at that point, I was like, why don't you just make this animated? Mm, yeah. But... Um, I don't think it necessarily would have uh, made that much money if it was uh, animated either, because Tintin didn't exactly bust all the blocks either. And uh, the BFG's job uh, that he's given himself is to uh, run to the land of dreams, find the best dreams, bottle them, 
bring them back to his place, uh, mix them in dream alchemy, because he kind of finds the raw materials and then like turns them into more complex dreams. Yeah, you see way more in this than you ever do in the book of where the dreams actually come oh, from. Oh, nice. Yeah. In the book, they're just you, you go to dream country and they're just flying around like butterflies already. Which is here, the Roald Dahl's science. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, whereas here they have this amazingly beautiful sequence where it's it's almost reminded me of um, some of the sequences in Fantasia, mm. where you have the tree reminded me um, of uh, one in the uh, spirit world in Wakanda. Yeah. Yeah, but there's close-ups on the on these leaves on the plants in Dream Country, and there's it's almost like water, but it's alive and lit up like sparklers, coming up through the leaves and then kind of dripping down off as if it was um, rainwater. Mm. But then as it falls, it forms into these little sprite-like flying things which have life about them and and um there's all all different colors and they all mix together but yeah the idea that the the dreams that he collects are all tiny little facets of of ideas and themes and thoughts and he blends them together into something that would make sense to the person it was given to yeah uh, there, I was uh, most amused by the fact that this was mid-2016, uh, the tail end of the Barack Obama era, and uh, the, it's a mention of something that's uh, from the book about uh, a boy dreaming of uh, the president phoning him up mm. and saying, you know, uh, you need to help me with this particular situation, which in the 80s would have probably been quite fun and exciting for a small child. And I remember when I uh, was first read Charlie in the Great Glass Elevator, the illustra- while it was written in the 70s during Nixon's uh, campaign. Uh, it was actually the illustration. It wasn't Quentin Blake. It was someone else had uh, drawn the president to look like Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, the actor. And when we were kids in the eighties, there was no, you know, in in England, you didn't really hear about the bad shit that Ronald Reagan did. He was just the president of America, and America was a great country. Mm. <sighs> Now, the idea of getting a personal phone call from the president, I'd, I'd shit my ever-loving pants. I'd hang up on him. <laughs> I'd be I'm like, not talking to you. The like, moment you hang up on him, that's when the SWAT team come through your fucking well, door and window. Maybe so. But, um, but yeah, no, this kid gets the presidential dream, yeah. and there's a really neat uh, description when Sophie says, well, dreams are really short because he has it really quickly. And the BFG says, dreams is really long on the inside, but short on the outside. And I was like, you just saved Christopher Nolan an hour's worth of explaining. (laughs) Thank you, BFG. Indeed. There is inceptioning in this film. They literally give Queen Elizabeth II in the 80s a troggle humper, which is a nightmare, on purpose to illustrate to her the dangers of the giants. Absolutely. And that was a concept that I always loved about the book as well, the idea that dreams can be used as a means of communication. Yeah. Um, but the the one thing in this um, about the dreams that I absolutely adored, which again is not in the book, is how alive they are and that they attempt to communicate. And he the uh, the BFG catches a, a dream which 
my mind's gone blank and I can't think what he refers to it as. But it's it's an incredibly wonderful good dream. A fizz wizard. Fizz wizard. That's the one. Thank you. With a P H. Um, yeah, and um, he identifies that this is one which is very specifically drawn to Sophie, mm-hmm. and he he catches it in a jar and puts it down in front of her, and the dream darts around the inside of the jar like a sparkler and draws Sophie's face. And it made me think of that moment in the abyss when the water reaches out to Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio and communicates with her by shaping itself like her face, mirroring her and and sort of trying to make a connection. Stay tuned for Cameron season, folks. (laughs) It felt like that's what the dream was doing, that it wasn't just a label, that this was it directly trying to connect with Sophie. Yeah. And there's uh, this is another thing that was added to the film that I think is absolutely wonderful. It's near the tail end when they've... Um, after they've told Queen Elizabeth II about the giants and then she's scrambled the helicopters to come and take these things and put them in some kind of giant jail. Um, Which did make me think the Queen can't do that. Well, <laughs> apparently want, she you can. You Margaret Thatcher for that. <laughs> Apparently she can. And uh, uh, the BFG and Sophia are sort of sitting alone and uh, it's this wonderful little speech about you're going to have to go back and be part of the human race. You can't really stay with me. In the book, she just stays with him, right? Um, I think so, yeah. Or that he has a big house and she has a little house next to it or something like that. And for all the vaunted darkness that everyone talks about with the book, Roald Dahl's very good at just giving you a very happy ending. Mm. He just goes, and then James got to live in the giant peach with all his friends. And then Charlie Bucket got to go and live at the factory with all of his family. And then Danny got to live with his dad. He never, ever, ever. And then Matilda got to live with Miss Honey. He always gave us the happiest possible ending. He would not fuck with melancholy. This film is melancholy. Mm. It is not afraid to go, you know what? They're going to have to be separated. This happens, kids. Now you can criticise the shit out of it for not showing um, giants chewing up children with chunks of guts flying out of their mouths. <laughs> um, but ultimately it possessed the bravery that its author didn't have for writing an end that maybe some children really wouldn't like. And maybe some adults wouldn't like the an end, an end that would leave them feeling heartaching. What is Sophie's dream? A golden fizz wizard. I don't see much of them anymore. But but what does it say? Tells us a story of a little gal, a little chiddler with a whole life ahead of her, with a family of her own, little chiddlers of her own too. Someday there'll be great successfuls, <laughs> funnies ahead of her, and truth to tell, just a dribble of despair. Times would be hard, times would be soft. Adventures will come and go. But in the end, she's 
she remembers the good deeds. Now, Sophie, I, I know that story be your heart's desire. I know that. The dream, it came to you, didn't it? It'd be Sophie's dream. But then I wake up. Then you wakes up. But not here. No. Yeah, there's more dreams to catch. More little froggle frump. but not in giant country. But will I still have you? Will you still hear me when I call for you? Are you forgetting something? Are you forgetting these? said about uh, Willy Wonka and his uh, child trap murder factory the better <laughs> but there's, there's one thing that Roald Dahl did like and that was farting uh, because uh, he uh, wrote a uh, fizzy lifting drink type thing which was basically uh, a, 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 a frobscottle a soda that where the bubbles go down and they um, they make they make you break wind to the point where you, in fact, levitate. And uh, there's, I think, it's probably the only film we were ever gonna see where uh, the queen farts so hard that the she nearly blows the table cover off. And uh, I, I, they actually cut to a scene of um, uh, Steven Spielberg directing you know, on the um, making of, and he's directing Penelope Wilton's Sean's mum from Shaun of the Dead, and he's like, hold it, hold it, and just like, you can't hold it any longer. He's telling Penelope Wilton what to do with her chocolate starfish, and I'm like, not many directors have ever had to do that. <laughs> so what you're saying is that Spielberg went where Edgar Wright hesitated to tread. <laughs> Maybe so, yeah. Uh, there's also snozcumbers, which are, I think, downplayed in this, frankly. They there's are. one scene which makes them utterly gross, and then they thankfully move on. It's so gross. It's like they're made of mucus. They never... The, the, okay, the, the way... The, and yet snozberries taste like snozberries. The way snozcumbers look in this is absolutely vomit-inducing. They are a stringy, cucumber-like monstrosity that look like they've got worms crawling out of them. Maggots. Maggots. <laughs> Maggots. <laughs> All over it. the floor of the post office yes. in latent style. They are absolutely hideous, but they don't really talk much about what they taste like. Which oh, they is disgusturous yeah, this, it, and it repulsant. It's horrid, but they are described in the book as being like frog skins and rotten fish. That's how Sophie describes them. Yes, she, she takes one lick and nearly pukes. Yes, indeed. Um, but that's fine. We've got the visual effect for this. Very specifically, the BFG has to eat these wretched fucking 
Vegetables? Yes. Are they cucumbers? They're, they're vegetables. They're, um, are they actually a good point? They, might they is veggie troubles. The seeds are on the inside, so... These disgusting fucking shit things. Yeah. He but eats the, these the rather is... than children. He could yeah. at any point go and eat children. But... And from, for some reason, like, these giants are able to disappear, Christ knows how many kids, from the world with no recompense. And, like, it's in the papers, like, children disappeared from from Baghdad because he said he was going to Baghdad and then Bagmom and, uh, yep. What are the other things that are in the book? He's saying that... People from Panama taste like hats. He's tasting of hats. Yep. Um, <laughs> People from yeah. Turkey tasting like turkey. No. Turkish delight. Turkish, de- they is tasting of Turkish delight. That is right. Good Lord, um, the eyes forgetful like that. The snozcumber is the only thing that will grow in giant country specifically, and but it's Sophie, his penance. Sophie suggests to him that they go and steal turnips and pumpkins, and but he won't steal. He won't steal. Yes, absolutely. Um, he is incredibly uh, and ethical. Is, as there far is as a nod go. to that at the end of this, which is that Sophie sees where he is living now and he is growing his own vegetables he's Mm. effectively got a a farm um, and he's growing much nicer things and assuming that that is giant country they've obviously done something to the soil now to make it grow something that isn't snozcumbers although he does still have snozcumbers doesn't he to make frobscottle out of of course that that threw me I was not aware that frobscottle was made out of snozcumbers it's never mentioned in the book so I assume they just must have gone well it's got to come from something what did frobscottle come from yeah why does it why does it not taste like absolute shit as well okay so as well as snozcumbers one presumes you are growing sugar cane (laughs) just got to chuck a whole lot of sugar in (laughs) just like a lot of sugar yeah I noticed as well that when they take the giants away on Chinooks, the Queen has them thrown basically on the Rock of Gibraltar uh, or the Isle of Wight or something, just this this pinnacle. In the book, it's they, they are, they're thrown in a giant pit in London Zoo and people look at them and they throw snozcumbers to them for food. I think just the, the imagery there, people would have gone, well, if they just get on each other's shoulders... There is that, yes. They'll just be able to climb out. Yeah. Like, well, and if you build it so deep that all nine of them standing on each other's shoulders, that, that that's going to be down to the core of the earth yeah. at that I mean, point. They, they Sorry, it would barely them. pierce the mantle, I know. They drop Still, it's a very, very deep pit. And if you trust, toss them down the bottom, <laughs> the helicopters would barely be able to get out of this. Yeah. And you wouldn't have time to dig a pit that big. It would take years. So they just put them on an island. It's way better. Indeed, but the island and then they, they drop them batter off. them with snozcumbers. It's just it's just a rock in the middle of what I assume is the Irish Sea. Yeah. It looks like it might possibly be part of the Giant's Causeway. What is they be drinking then? Good question. Seawater. Um. But then they is puking and rowing thrup. Well, quite possibly. Um, but it's it's just this empty little island um, that you know the the. Gibraltar and the Isle of Wight are inhabited at the end of the day. People live on them. This is just... This This looks like the island that Luke Skywalker retired to. I'll put them on the Falklands. We kept it for strategic sheep purposes. Oh, and there's one more bit of imagery which wasn't really in the book that I adore seeing in this, and it's very puerile and silly and childish. It's that when everyone starts farting in the Queen's breakfast chamber because they've been drinking frobscottle... Her three corgis all start farting as well. It's like green gas. And they just go flying off and skittering across the floor, farting. And yeah, I, I, 
It takes a lot for a fart gag to really get me, but this one did. Now, um, reasons that it probably didn't make a billion dollars, and uh, this one's tricky because I, I really don't like to tell anyone why they didn't like something. This is not me doing that. It is not for me to say why you didn't like it, dear listener. And uh, I know it always annoys me when I hear critics on things that I'm listening to hand wave away reasons for appeal or for lack thereof. So these are just kind of a series of guesses that may be way off and they may have some weight to them. Uh, 2016 was an absolutely packed year for blockbusters. As well as the ones we already mentioned, there was also Finding Dory, Independence Day Resurgence, The Secret Life of Pets, Passengers, Inferno, Assassin's Creed, Jason Bourne, The Great Wall, Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, Warcraft, Ghostbusters Answer the Call, The Magnificent Seven, Star Trek Beyond, Rogue One, Doctor Strange, and Zootopia. It's absurd. And at the end of a 2020 almost devoid of big movies that we could all see together in the cinema, it is easy now to look back with hungry, envious eyes and see that surfeit of blockbusters maybe being spread out over a bunch of years to give them all a chance to breathe. But it would also explain why some of them just plain got ignored, like the absolutely wonderful Kubo and the Two Strings, which we did a show on back then, and A Monster Calls, which barely anyone saw, and we definitely need to do a show on that as well. Absolutely. I think we might make that a double bill of A Monster Calls and I Kill Giants and just compare and contrast because they are the same story. Yes, pretty much. Uh, reason number two, people don't like precocious children as leads, especially not teens or parents. Unless Hermione has Harry and Ron in accompaniment. I could be wrong on that, but people don't generally tend to go, and actually, I'm tallest in my class. Oh, I really want to see this kid. Like, I do. I loved, uh, that was Lucy in The Lion, Witch of the Wardrobe. I lo- yeah, she was wonderful. I don't know. I think, you know, it was 2016. People wanted to see aliens and superheroes. And again, I, again, this is just a possibility. But uh, people don't tend to warm to child stars who have to take quite so much of the um, dramatic weight of the film. Uh, number three, people don't like a lot of performance capture in movies as the Uncanny Valley effect creeps them out. Hence the consistent failure of everything by Image Movers Digital. Unless, of course, that film turns out to be Avatar, then the whole world gives it $2.7 billion. But Avatar very specifically avoided the Uncanny Valley by making the creatures in it tall and slender and slightly furry and blue. They didn't they didn't look Almost human, but not quite. Like with flesh Beowulf, color, for example. With Caucasian skin. I love me some Beowulf. I think Beowulf is amazing. Beowulf made quite a lot of people sick. Literally. I was sat right next to one of them. That's because we watched it in 3D. Yeah, probably That's shouldn't have done that. That's completely beside the point. That was uh, Beowulf issue yeah. for our <laughs> co-friend, yeah. Thomas. It was making me feel poorly, too. Um, I felt more poorly when I could smell him being sick. Okay, enough. <laughs> into enough. his own lap. Okay, I'm now having flashbacks I didn't want. More about that when we cover Beowulf well, indeed. in Sick. But the point being that the characters in Beowulf were supposed to look precisely human, and they didn't. Mm. The characters in Avatar were not meant to look precisely human, and they didn't. Therefore, it's a lot quicker for people to get past that. They just 
stretched out Tobias Funke. Yeah, basically. <laughs> I'm afraid I just blew myself. It's got to be a better way to say that. But to add to that, uh, it, it, people were just seriously into superheroes in 2016, but also Star Wars had just come back. Nobody cared about this fairy tale anymore. I don't know why suddenly Star Wars being back and being a thing and being a huge deal would necessarily impact upon the BFG, but it did feel very much like, what do you got for us? If it's not Star Wars, we don't care. Well, I'll tell you exactly what it is. Star Wars is suitable for the little kids in the family. Mm. This is a little kid's story. The movie is not necessarily, but the book is a little kid's story. So if you've got a family with older kids in it, they are going to refuse point blank to go and see the BFG. Because mm. that's a kid's movie. Yeah, for babies. Yeah. But that also suggests that it was released 30 years too late. And it maybe should have been put out in the late 80s, when the around about the time that the Cosgrove Hall version emerged. It needed to be in a simpler time when we weren't all freaking out over the imminent Brexit result. And let's not forget the imminent US election result. It's almost as though there was no room for whimsy. I remember going to see Independence Day Resurgence on the day that the Brexit result was announced. And I was just, I was just broken, just crestfallen. I was like... Okay, just give me a fucking, give me a world which is better because aliens invaded us 20 years ago and just like, just, just, uh, aliens come back and we fight them and we're all brought together. And it couldn't even do that. It was fucking wretched. I hated that film. See our 2016 show on first Independence Day, which is really good. And then Independence Day Resurgence, which is really bad, but not in a good way, in a really bad way. Another reason is it's unlikely to be the critics keeping people away as they couldn't stop people seeing Suicide Squad in droves, but 75% freshness does give us clues as to what some people's take-home might have been. Now, you've heard us gush about it, but Richard Brody of The New Yorker, who's probably spent his entire life being called Brody, well, our jaws and that, probably not, <laughs> stating that it plays like a forced march, of a forced march of fun, a mandatory strain of magic, and a prescribed dose of poetry, like a movie ready-made for screening in classrooms when a teacher is absent. Brady, however, observes that Spielberg is the BFG who's menaced by bigger and more monstrous giants who aren't interested in edifying their audiences, but merely in consuming them. Consuming the consumer, so to speak. Ooh. That's... I mean, I, I kind of like the meta of that, but it's fucking bleak. Mm, a little bit. I mean, yeah, you could say that of Suicide Squad, that it's like, hey, motherfucker, do you know what exists? Hot topic. Get your ass down there. There's merchandise to buy. Woo-wee, I'm stir crazy. I'm not a man. I'm an ideal. Tell wanker. Mm. Richard Roper of the Chicago Sun-Times uh, called the film technically impressive, but listless and tedious, painfully cutesy, silly and gross rather than whimsical and funny. He thought the film moved far too slowly and it was missing a sense of wonder and adventure. Missing a sense of wonder? Did he go to fucking fill up his popcorn when they went to catch dreams? Anyway. Uh, and he said that he'd rather see every one of Spielberg's previous films before having to sit through the BFG again. Now That's, that's the words of a man who hasn't seen 1941. Yeah. <laughs> but it is damning with faint praise considering the high quality of output of this director's back catalogue, which we've just about finished getting through. 
Cole Smythe described the film as a drab affair. Giving the BFG one star out of five, he criticised its creepy style of animation and dragging tempo. Clearly, we are... Well, we're not in the minority, because 75% suggest that three out of four went, it's all right. But it's all right just wouldn't cut it in 2016. Mm. And Rotten Tomatoes is a fucking terrible way to judge films that are just all right. Because if if three out of four say it's all right, that doesn't mean it's great. It just means just generally favorable. But I personally think that the main reason is that people want a big, loud, boisterous performance in their huge CG-assisted lead. They want Robin Williams as the genie, but not as Patch Adams or Bicentennial Man or that priest out of License to Wed. They want Jim Carrey as the Grinch or the Mask or the Riddler, but not as the Majestic. Or they want Mike Myers as Shrek, but not as the Love Guru. And Mark Rylance delivers a very slight, haunted, intimate performance, which would be dissatisfying to general audiences. And he wasn't a name either. Mm. Like if this was a if this was the Robin Williams of of his day, like I don't know who was huge in com- comedic at that point. I had to have a think and uh, worked and went back through the comedians uh, who were in you know big things throughout 2016, and then realised they would have to be someone that Stephen liked working with already, had a pre-existing relationship with, that audiences trusted and liked, and that doing a more slight performance... Basically, it's someone with star power who could deliver something like this that the stranger that Rylance represented to them on screen wasn't. And it's America's uncle, Tom Hanks. He wouldn't have been uh, as right for the role for me... I think I was kind of bowled over by uh, how uh, uh, Rylance performed this, but he would have been right for big general audiences and people would have actually flocked to it more, I feel. Rylance's restraint, I think, would have been dissatisfying to general audiences and would have made children feel melancholy without understanding why or what that feeling even equates to. I think it would have probably affected a lot of adults as well. But to me, that feeling is precious. And what this film kept communicating was that Steve is now in the winter of his creative arc. And so is Williams. And so is Rylance. And at the time, I'd only just met the man. And there was one screenwriter for this film, one woman assigned to adapt the book, uh, Melissa Matheson, uh, writer of the script for The Black Stallion and that of The Indian in the Cupboard and Stephen's kick-the-can segment of the Twilight Zone, the movie. Um, But most importantly, she was the writer of E.T. the Extraterrestrial, which is notable for being the first time that Spielberg was shooting from a child's perspective. You got that kid in Close Encounters and the other kids in the family, but it is not from their perspective. That is not their story. Because Steve was trying to explain why the dad left, not what a rotten time the kids were going through. Yeah, E.T. was a E.T. was a big deal. It was the start of something for Steve, and this felt like a, a weird bookend to that. As a result, um, she was also married to Harrison Ford from uh, 1983 to 2004. That's a long time in Hollywood terms. And Melissa died the winter before her last film, 
screenplay, the BFG, was released. Which I feel must surely have infused the post-production with a sense of fond farewell. Because uh, Melissa wanted to reach out to children and make them think. Uh, there's, there's footage of her talking about this in the, in the making of. And she wanted them to consider the other and friendship and what the right thing to do at any one time is. And so introspection. And that scans entirely with E.T. as well. And that desire for connection is something I will look back on, grateful that it exists, even if nobody else found this precious, glowing little fizz wizard. School of Movies is supported via Patreon, and our top-tier sponsors get a name-check every episode. So thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Outridge, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Dan Hepner, Daniel Salguero, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Evan Jankowski, Finbar Nicole, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Gasiga, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joseph Gluck, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksh, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Scott Jacob, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Trey Contreras, and Tom Painter. Next week, we will finally be tackling Ready Player One in a show we recorded in late 2019 before all this 2020 nonsense began. It's one of the most challenging edits I've ever had to do, but I feel like it was worth it. So you can look forward to that. And we're going to actually end on a piece of music and a song from the Cosgrove Hall BFG, uh, Sometimes Secretly, which is a song sung by Sophie when she's on her own. And I know this means a lot to Sharon and might mean something to some of the rest of you. Either way, it's a very sweet song. So we'll see you next week. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's, School's Out.
Who knows what each other might?